I don't think I was clinically depressed. It didn't go for two weeks. But I had been depressed before. And for five days, it felt very similar, where I would kind of wake up down, where I would wake up really heavy. I'd, I wasn't enjoying the things I usually enjoy. And I got really concerned. Um, and so I asked Dave to preach all of Advent. And um, I met up with every mentor I had um, as a staff they prayed for me, and and um, and I shared with them, and we spent 40 minutes praying that day, and I spent some time in worship, and uh, by God's grace, He just kind of lifted me out of that. I didn't know what brought me in. I think only by God's grace, He kind of just lifted me out, and so I'm still kind of going easy. I'm I'm like careful, but I do feel thankful, and yet that was probably some of the hardest uh, days that I walked through this year. And then, la- and then lastly, when I think about Renew on the upside or on the highs, um, really thankful for the staff that I got to um, work with this year. Dave has been amazing. Just, I mean, you guys have told me how amazing he is, and I, I agree with you. And then Janet has really offloaded some of Nina's work and helped Dave out with uh, the admin side. But our whole team, we get to sit down on Tuesdays and really kind of operate as a small group. We pray for each other. We share our lives with each other. It's it's really, I don't feel as alone in ministry. I feel like I have people to do it with and people I can be friends with and be community with. So that's been so great. I think one of the hardest parts of Renew is um, for me personally, God's really challenged me as a leader to walk into difficult conversations. And and to, uh, to look for ways when people are infighting to say, hey, can we sit down over a beer, look each other in the eye, and put everything on a table or coffee if we're under 21 or don't drink? And, um, and, that's, and, and I've done that personally with people I felt like maybe are upset with me or that I've had a hard time with. And I've asked other people to do that as well or facilitate those conversations. And I think one of the hardest parts of Renew over the last couple years maybe is – um, not all of us are Asian American, but the Asian American culture that is like very passive aggressive and is hard. We have a hard time looking at each other and and talking through things. One of my mentor, who's uh, white, said Asian, and he works in the Asian American ministry. He says, "You, you, the the culture has kind of married anger and conflict. You know." Like, it doesn't need to be married. You could have conflict and not be angry. But a lot of what we've been modeled is that it's always together and violently together. And so we kind of walk away from it. And I really appreciate, you know, other cultures being here. You know, if you're black or Hispanic or white, that I feel like you get to speak into that part of our of our church's uh, struggles. And I've seen many of you step up and try to, bless us with another cultural perspective. And so um, that's been kind of a hard thing for me, but I hope that as I grow up in this personally, that all of us would rise up as well to say, hey, this person's hurt me, and I'm going to walk towards the conflict instead of walking away. Or instead of gossiping, I'm going to speak directly and, and bless this person in sharing my heart with them. You know, So I would love for us to work on that. I personally am working on that, but it's been very difficult. All right, with that, I want to give you guys three to four minutes to share about your highs and lows uh, this year. Personally, if you've been involved with this church, you're welcome to share about that as well. And then we'll come up and um, go into the sermon.
Check, check. All right. Thanks, everyone, for sharing. <clears throat> I'm going to invite uh, Rachel up. She's our uh, guest speaker for the day. Really thankful for her. Rachel actually was with us our first year of Renew and um, helped plant Renew with us and really grateful for her. She graduated Fuller Seminary with the MDiv. She worked for Salvation Army, World Vision, and Samaritan Purse over the last one, two, six years, give or take. And uh, spent two years in the Congo doing relief work and development um, and then, or working in the, with and in the Congo. And then she was in Haiti um, after the earthquake in 2010 and uh, cholera ep epidemic and doing, again, uh, huge projects and relief work there as well. And the last three years, she's worked at Miramar in microfinance with the Vision Fund. Uh, it's, a, it's a part of um, World Vision. And their goal is to, do, to help entrepreneurs in Miramar start up businesses and for that to be self-sustaining. It's actually for-profit, which is awesome because they want to be able to sustain their organization to continue to do other, um, to invest in other uh, people. And, um, but to me, Rachel's just a childhood friend. Um, her mom actually tutored me and my sister and her kids and a few others at her home. So on, in the summer, I'd go over when I was in elementary school and uh, we played Monopoly in, her, in the closet with like her brother Daniel and my sister. I think they still owe me like $10,000 worth of Monopoly money. And then- uh, He was also like five years older I than I was us, five so. years older. <laughs> Both of them Definitely are smarter than me, but five years is a long way when you're, when you're in <laughs> elementary school. So she was two, he was one and a half, and I beat them. <laughs> I'm just kidding. Uh, Rachel's a baller, so we had a lot of time on the basketball court. Um, but I think what I've always admired about her, way beyond you know, her resume now, is that she has this un unquenchable passion uh, for the Lord from her youth all the way till now. And, and there's so many times where she's inspired me to love the Lord. And we both felt called to ministry at an early age. And uh, it was awesome to have someone to, like, be in that calling together with. So I love Rachel. I love her family. Daniel's here. Uh, he's a professor in Maryland. Ellie works for NPR uh, in Washington, D.C. And they're just amazing people. Uh, and and we got to we got to be friends for a lot of years. So, anyways, I'm excited to hear Rachel preach. You, she, Daniel, and Ellie were our first guests as dinners in our home uh, a couple of nights ago, and she was telling me about the sermon she preached at her church in Miramar, and I was just like, that was amazing. Take my spot, and so that's why. Thanks, Rachel. Good All to right. see you. <laughs> Thanks, Wilson. Um, Wilson was saying a lot of nice things about me, and you know. For as long as I've known Wilson, that's just, that's one sign, basically, that um, he's going to ask you to do something for his ministry. When he, so you have to be careful once, you know, he starts saying really nice things, you're like, oh, man, you got to think. Okay, he's going to ask me to do something for his church. <laughs> but, yeah, um, and it's, it's kind of interesting that, uh, yeah, we were there at your place, I think, what, two, three nights ago, I think, and I was sharing about this, and... Um, and it's, it's probably, it's a really short sermon. It, it, it was only like 12 minutes or something. And Wilson was like, oh, can't you do any examples or anything? I was like, no, there were no examples. So we'll see how it goes. <laughs> but I might add something. I, I, was, I was praying about it as we were worshiping and stuff. So maybe you can pull up the PowerPoint. Um, 
and it's it's a bit uh, it, it's we're gonna focus a lot on the text this morning. I'm not sure if Wilson mentioned this earlier. I can't remember, but I also have a um, Master's of Divinity, so I have a seminary degree. Um, so forgive me if I spend a little longer uh, on on First Kings uh, chapter 20. So um, let's see if this works here. Yeah, I have it up here. All right, so let's let's take a look at the text here, First Kings chapter 20. Uh, verse 13. Meanwhile, a prophet came to Ahab, king of Israel, and announced. This is what the Lord says. Do you see this vast army? I will give it into your hand today, and then you will know that I am the Lord. But who will do this? Asked Ahab. The prophet replied, this is what the Lord says. The junior officers under the provincial commanders will do it. And who will start the battle? He asked. The prophet answered, you will. So Ahab summoned the 232 junior officers under the provincial commanders. Then he assembled the rest of the Israelites, 7,000 in all. They set out at noon while Ben-Hadad and the 32 kings allied with him were in their tents getting drunk. The junior officers under the provincial commanders went out first. He said, if they have come out for peace, take them alive. If they have come out for war, take them alive. The junior officers under the provincial commanders marched out of the city with the army behind them, and each one struck down his opponent. At that, the Arameans fled with the Israelites in pursuit. But Ben-Hadad, king of Aram, escaped on horseback with some of his horsemen. The king of Israel advanced and overpowered the horses and chariots and inflicted heavy losses on the Arameans. Afterward, the prophet came to the king of Israel and said, strengthen your position and see what must be done, because next spring the king of Aram will attack you again. Meanwhile, the officials of the king of Aram advised him, their gods are gods of the hills. That is why they were too strong for us. But if we fight them on the plains, surely we will be stronger than they. Do this, remove all the kings from their commands and replace them with other officers. You must also raise an army like the one you lost horse for horse and chariot for chariot, so we can fight Israel on the plains, then surely we will be stronger than they. He agreed with them and acted accordingly. The next spring, Ben-Hadad mustered the Arameans and went up to Apec to fight against Israel. When the Israelites were also mustered and given provisions, they marched out to meet them. The Israelites camped opposite them like two small flocks of goat, while the Arameans covered the countryside. The man of God came up and told the king of Israel, this is what the Lord says. Because the Arameans think the Lord is a God of the hills and not a God of the valleys, I will deliver this vast army into your hands and you will know that I am the Lord. Um, so the title of this sermon is God of the hills and the valleys. And for the longest time, I didn't like this song at all. But then I was reading this passage, and then, like, it really grew on me. You know, the, the one to Taryn Wells, God of the Hills and the Valleys. Um, all right, so that was a lot of text. Uh, let's take a look a bit at the context of it. Because sometimes when I read a lot of scripture, you, you know, it kind of, like, goes over my head. Um, I'm not sure if that probably happens with some of you as well. But basically, what's going on here? Ben-Hadad, the king of Aram, is threatening Israel with a massive alliance of 32 kings. And um, Yahweh sends the prophet 
to Ahab to let him know that he will deliver them so that he will know that he is the Lord. And if you guys remember Ahab in scripture, he's a wicked king. He's part of the Omri dynasty, the son of Omri. And um, you know, they lead the people astray. They worship other gods and they perpetuate a lot of injustice against the people. And there are several times in scripture it mentions that these kings did more evil than any other kings before them. And in, in the um, chapter before, in chapter 19, there was the showdown between Elijah and the prophets of Baal. It was like epic, right? Um, 750 prophets of Baal, Elijah calls down fire, consumes the sacrifice, but then he has to run for his life. Um, and then he's really depressed. He's like, no one's there. Um, you know, I'm the only one that remains. And God comes and, and speaks with him. And, and, and um, you also see that in this moment, the Lord is also angry with Israel. Israel have broken their covenant with the Lord. And um, basically the Lord appoints three destroyers. One is Hazel of Aram, who is the king that will follow Ben-Hadad, the king in our, in our story. Uh, Jehu of Israel, um, the king who will follow Ahab. And Elisha, the prophet who will follow Elijah. And basically, these three people will end the entire Omri dynasty. They will wipe out all of Ahab's lineage. So going back to um, chapter 20, which is our text for today. The odds are stacked against Israel. Strategically, Aram is allied with 32 other kings. And these 33 kings altogether are going to be fighting against the junior officers. That's who the Lord tells um, Aram, uh, sorry, um, Ahab to send the junior officers, not even, not even the provincial commanders. So strategically, Israel is at a disadvantage. Morally, Ahab is a wicked leader. And spiritually, the Israelites have broken their covenant with God. They're completely undeserving of his mercy and grace. And Israel should face the consequences of their sin. So all of these things lead us to expect that Israel will lose, but the Israelites defeat the Arameans. And in verse 23, the Arameans regroup and they advise their king. Their gods are gods of the hills. That is why they were too strong for us. But if we fight them on the plains, surely we will be stronger than they. So next spring, they return to attack Israel again. And the Israelites are outnumbered. If you look at verse 27, it says, they're like small flocks of goat compared to the massive army of Aram and his allies. And the prophet tells Ahab, because the Arameans think the Lord is a God of the hills and not a God of the valleys, I will deliver this vast army into your hands and you will know that I am the Lord. This is verse 28. Two times, the Lord says he will deliver the Israelites so that they will know he is the Lord. He is Yahweh. This is verse 13 and 28. So what does this passage actually show us about who the Lord is? Who is Yahweh? Because that's the reason that God will deliver them, so that they will know that he is Yahweh. And I think that verse 28 is the pivotal verse. Okay, it was fun doing this PowerPoint because I just 
got to like take a look at a lot of really pretty pictures of hills and valleys. Um, but you know, verse 28, because the Arameans think the Lord is a God of the hills and not a God of the valleys, I will deliver this vast army into your hands and you will know that I am the Lord. The Lord is God of the hills and of the valleys. And these are our typical associations with hills and valleys. Hills are the high places. They're advantageous positions. It's a place of victory, superiority, elation. And our typical associations with valleys is that these are lows. These are places of disadvantage. These are places where we encounter defeat. It's a place of humility and sadness. It's those mountaintop experiences while we always have spiritual retreats on mountains, right? Spiritual highs versus the valley lows where God seems to be absent. Now, these are our typical associations, but the Lord shows in this passage, and I, and I want to argue throughout scripture, that he is a God who turns all of this upside down. Even the first battle on the hills was disadvantageous for Israel. 33 kings allied, and God asked them to use the junior officers. But the Lord delivers. The second battle was the battle in the valleys. And the Lord is precisely the Lord. He is precisely Yahweh because he is a God of the valleys. Other gods are gods of the hills. We expect and we worship like gods of the hills, because these are, these are gods of success. These are you know, experience, numbers, connections, influence, wealth. And we rely on these things to grant us victory. We rely on these quote-unquote gods of the hills. From the mountaintops, victory seems easy and obtainable. People can claim reliance on themselves. You know, if Israel is fighting from a position of advantage, if they had that size of an army, they could say, well, we did it ourselves. You know, they can attribute the victory to something they've done. They could take credit for it. It's our strategic thinking. It's our positioning. It's our resources. But the valley of defeat demands complete surrender because nothing Israel or Ahab, Ahab can do can bring about their own deliverance. That's what we see in this passage. Israel has broken covenant, and they face the curse of this brokenness, which is death. And we can relate to this because we too have broken covenant. And what that means, the curse of this brokenness is death. But the Lord demonstrates his faithfulness and his everlasting love. This is who he is. You know, and typically we think of First Kings, you know, as a historical narrative. Um, or, you know, maybe it's about the prophets. But what we see here is that it's a profoundly evangelical message because the God of the valleys is the God of the cross. In our valleys is precisely where we need God and exactly where he is. In our valleys, we recognize our complete and utter dependence on him. Everything else has been stripped away. Everything we've tried, all our competencies and resources are not enough. We have lost the battle. Defeat and death are certain.
And as we, as we go through life, you know, we typically, we want to jump from mountaintop to mountaintop, whether it's our spiritual lives, professional lives, um, in our education. That's what we want. We're afraid of the valleys. But we don't realize that the way to the hilltop is through the valleys. That the way of resurrection comes through the cross and we live only through our death. Like Israel, we have sinned. All we have done, all we are, all we can do is not enough. We cling to the God of the hills when actually we are in the valley. And what we need is God of the valley. We have failed. We are broken and defeated, and only the God of the cross can lead us to new life beyond the grave. But first, we must traverse the grave. We are dead, just as our nation is dead. We must cling to the God who raises the dead. And this is who the Lord is. This is who Yahweh is. He's God of the valleys, God of the cross, who dies with us so that he might raise us from the dead. And um, Wilson is going to get his examples. <laughs> so I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, to um, give a few examples. These are kind of my last three points that I'm going to wrap up with. But the first one is that the battle is spiritual. I think when we think about the valleys in our lives, we, we often attribute them to, you know, things that are physical, social, economic, political. And I'm gonna give you two examples. One is where I'm currently at in Myanmar. Um, we have a state on the west side that uh, borders Bangladesh. And if any of you guys have been following the news, you've probably heard of the state of Rakhine and the situation uh, between the Buddhists and the Muslims. The Buddhists are the dominant, uh, the dominant group, and the Muslims are the minority, and um, they're called the Rohingya. And there is systematic discrimination against the Rohingya. Um, you know, in the news, I mean, they talk about genocide because these people have no means for livelihoods. Their movement is restricted. They don't have citizenship. Um, they've been, their villages have been burned down. Uh, the ones that have stayed live in camps and they cannot leave the camps. Uh, they fear for their lives. Many have fled to, um, to Bangladesh. And when Aung San Suu Kyi, who is the current uh, leader of the, of the NLD, which is the party in power, took over from the military dictators um, in, in Myanmar uh, a couple years ago, I mean, she, she was a Nobel Peace Prize winner. The, uh, the whole international community was so hopeful that she was gonna bring about this wave of change. You know, in Myanmar, there's, uh, it's the longest running civil war in the world. And uh, where are we now? I think we're seven years later, and the war is still going on. In fact, things in Rakhine probably have gotten worse and not better. You know, there was tons of aid money flooding in, because I, I, I do international relief and development. And um, everyone was so excited when she came to power. And just this past year, um, there's so many things that have happened where all the money that's been poured in, all the, like, the smartest advisors, you know, from the World Bank, from the UN, whatever, advising, um, uh, the NLD, which is the party that's in power, about how to you know, fix the economy, all these things, and it's not enough. The battle continues. Um, it's, it's not, the, the people there, they still need reconciliation. They still need, there, there's, 
There's a need for forgiveness. There's a need for deliverance. There's a need for salvation because everything that people have tried is not enough. The second example I want to give is a personal example. I wasn't going to give this, actually, but as, I, as we were worshiping, uh, I felt like um, it would be good to share. For people who don't think the battle is spiritual, um, if you have had any experience uh, with a psychological disorder, then you will know this to be deeply true. That the battle actually is not just psychological, emotional, or physical. The battle becomes spiritual. Um, earlier this year, uh, basically my dad um, has bipolar disorder. And within the span of, I think, two, three weeks of each other, um, he attempted suicide twice. And You know, I mean, he has the family support. He has, uh, he, he's been taking medication. You know, there's, there's all these things that we can point to, um, but the battle, it's, it's, there's a spiritual battle going on. And everything that we can tr try to do as a family, we can't fix him. So that kind of leads to the second point. We cannot win on our own. We fight from a position of disadvantage, from the valley. In fact, we've already been defeated and we face certain death. Not just physical death, and I don't want to be morbid <laughs> for us to like contemplate our deaths, but I think many of us have had this experience. It might not be the, the death of someone we love, but it's the death of dreams. It's the death of of things in our life that we held on to, our, of our past, of something um, where we have to let go. We've been defeated. We've tried everything we possibly can in order to make it work, and it hasn't. And in these moments, we need to cling to the God of the valleys because our God is God of the valleys. God of the valleys is the one who can turn defeat into victory. Who can raise even the dead to life again. The message here in, from 1 Kings 20 isn't that um, Israel faces uh, death unless they change, unless they repent, unless they obey God. It's Israel's already dead. Israel is already defeated. In order for Israel to get to go into new life, they need the God of the cross who will resurrect them. It is an acceptance of that position of defeat and surrender and knowing that there's something even better than the things we held on to, than our former lives. So, that's kind of a heavy message. <laughs> Wilson, I'm um, not sure how you want to transition at this point. I mean, we can, we can pray, and then I can invite you back up, and then, okay. So, all right. Let's just spend some time in prayer.
Father God, we thank you for your presence here. That you're not only present on the mountaintops, on the hills, but you are also present with us in the valleys. And at times that is even more powerful, really, God, that in the places where we see no hope, where there is only darkness and defeat, when we've exhausted all of our resources, when we've used up our limits, that even there, you bring us out of the grave. That is the hope of your son, Jesus Christ. That is the gift that you have given us, that there is resurrection, real resurrection. And so, Lord, we, we give up to you those places in our lives, the dead dreams, the places where we have yet to surrender, we are struggling to surrender, and we cling to you to give us something more, to give us something better beyond our wildest dreams and imagination, God, because you are good and you are faithful and you are true to your promises. And we cling to that. We cling to you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thanks so much, Rachel. Really appreciate your word uh, this morning. We're going to spend a little bit of time just praying for each other. And this is, again, my favorite part of our service. You know, I, I, I never wanted a church where it's a stage and then everyone else. I wanted it to be a family. I want us to be a family where we can pray for each other and share our lives. And so... Um, how have you seen or do you, how do you want to see Jesus in your valleys? So especially when we think about this last year sharing our lows, I wonder what are the ways that we've seen Jesus there or what are the ways that we want to invite Jesus into those lows or those valleys? And I think another part of Rachel's message that I, I really loved was like no one believes that God exists in the valleys. Like, no matter what nation you come from, the God is always on the hill. But, but God saying, Yahweh saying, I'm a God, I am. I'm the God of valleys, mountains, farmland, love, babies, sky. I am the God of everything. And I wonder what, what, how, where do we want to discover Jesus next year? Is there a space where, he hasn't, where we haven't interacted with him? You know, is there a space in, in our lives where, where he is not the God of, like the valleys, or maybe Mondays, or work, or friends, or play, or Netflix? And I would love for us to think about how God can be a God uh, in a space that, that he isn't now. And lastly, I would love for us to pray for each other to find more of Jesus in both of those spaces. So I'll invite the worship team to come up, but I would love to give you three, four minutes just to pray for the, with the people next to you and to share. And then uh, we're going to take communion together. And I would love for you to take communion with the people you prayed and shared with um, and to remind us that, that, you know, again, there's so many religions out there and, and I haven't heard of other gods that have suffered, that have died, and that have been God in the suffering and death. And Jesus, because he's willing to suffer and die for us on the cross, he's a God of the valleys, not only because he's present, 
but because he's experienced the valleys and has resurrected out of that. And so we get a, a high priest who can empathize with our needs. We get to approach the throne of grace with confidence. Uh, we get to f- experience mercy when we need it most. And so I would love for us to take communion as we think about how that um, allows us to come before God and to press through the hardest, the hard times. All right, again, let's share and pray and take communion together.